Hi, friends. Glad you could join us today. My guest on the podcast is Joseph Wells. He is a writer in New York City focused on self-development. If you recognize his name, it could be because he is the first guest that I've had for a second time. The first episode we recorded was called Buying Time Freedom Before the 4% Rule. In that episode, we talked about the unique path that he is taking to reach financial independence, which includes leveraging your 401k in order to invest in real estate. Other topics we discussed were not caring what people think. Something he said that stuck with me was the opinions of others have no impact on you unless you let them. We also discussed how you can learn to better direct your thoughts. The episode was wildly popular by men overseas standards, of course. <laughs> that is to say, more than just our moms listened. <laughs> so I wanted to have him back. In this episode, we talk about developing confidence and courage. We share our thoughts on a recent article that we both enjoyed by Morgan Housel. It was called The Advantage of Being a Little Underemployed. Also, Joseph is the creator of a slick new app called Blogcaster, which is like Audible, but for blogs. So he's a young man of thought and action, and I really enjoyed this conversation. and hope you do too. So here we go. Joseph Wells, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me back. Sure. Yeah, this is your second time. You know, those who hate on social media are doing it wrong because we have met from Twitter. <laughs> now, many people get to meet their Twitter friends, but this is really cool. You're the second guy that I've met from Twitter. Uh, when I was in D.C. in September, I met a guy named Eddie Romanzo, and we had dinner just like you and I had. So I need to have him on the podcast at some point. This is a lot of fun. You know, some people... Um, including my girlfriend, think it's a little bit weird that I make friends online and then meet them in person. But what better way to find the people who have the same interests as you and you know are driven and out there and doing the cool things? The internet's a place to meet them, and then meet up in real life, and you do these kinds of things. So it's fun. That's so true. So who else have you met through Twitter? Uh, I met David Perel um, through Twitter, also um, through Instagram. I met. Alex Wiekowski, who runs the Alex and Books Instagram page, and I met a lot of people through the Rite of, Rite of Passage writing class, and I've met up with them um, in real life, too. So, Very cool. Well, I'm going to ask about Rite of Passage here later, but uh, one of the things that's fun about hosting a podcast is that I get to decide where we go from here. <laughs> so I thought that we would start with a story that I read that I deliberately did not read the entire thing. It was about you getting robbed at gunpoint. Can you tell me what happened? Ooh, diving right in here, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, so this was my last year in college. I was taking a full course load and working, I don't want to say full-time, but pretty close to it at a pizzeria. And this place was kind of in the hood. <laughs> and I did everything from make the pizzas to take the orders to delivery. Delivery was my primary job, but you know, I did everything there. And just to give you an idea for what the neighborhood was like, it would not be uncommon for somebody to come in with jewelry slung on their arm and try to sell it to you. So uh, yeah, that just gives you a little flavor. Also, the first and the 15th of the month were our busiest days because it's when the welfare checks come out. Mm. Um, so yeah, we were, we were in the hood. So this particular night it was pretty close to midnight which is when we closed and we had this last minute order come in which was always the worst you know because you're cleaning up you're getting ready to come home and now you got to get stuff dirty again to cook for somebody so I, I remember the order it was two pizzas with toppings and i think it was two dozen wings 
And it was going to a part of town that really wasn't that good. But it was the end of the night. I was ready to get out of there. So through the stuff in my car, pull up in front of this really rundown building. And there was a smashed pumpkin in the street. And there were some people kind of standing in a dark alleyway next to the building. So I hopped out of the car and said to them, you know, did you guys order pizza? They said no. So I walk up to the front of the building. There's no buzzer. There's no doorbell. There's nothing like that. So I just bang on the door. But it's clearly an apartment building. Like, no, that door doesn't go to anybody's apartment. No answer. I call the number I have. No answer. So I was like, all right, I guess... I guess I'm not delivering this one. So I go back to the pizza place and I walk through the door and the owner's there and he says, sorry, you got to go back. The person who ordered just called and said they're disabled and they, they missed you. They weren't able to get to the door. Now, you know, if this had been the beginning of my shift, maybe something would have clicked that said a disabled person ordering two pizzas and two dozen wings and they don't have somebody to come to the door to help them. That, that doesn't really make sense. But You know, it was after an eight-hour shift and a full day at school, so my brain wasn't making those connections. So I go back to the building, and the people aren't in the alleyway anymore. I go back up to the door. This time it's propped open. So this should have been red flag number two, right? Um, But again, just didn't click. So I walk into the building. I knock on the first door, no answer. Walk down the hall, knock on that door, no answer. I go upstairs, knock on a door there, and somebody comes out, but they hadn't ordered pizza. So at this point, I'm like really pissed off. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? I just want to go home, right? So I turn around, walk back down the stairs to go back to my car. And at the bottom of the stairs, there was a doorway there. And as I turn onto the landing, I see that door is cracked open a little bit. And I just see a red gloved hand stick out of the door and go back in. And immediately I knew something was not right. Like a Michael Jackson glove? (laughs) The thriller glove, (laughs) right? Um, So I I said I had to pass that door to get out of the building, and I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get past the door. So I said to the person, hey, did you order pizza? You know, I tried to sound assertive. Um, No response. So I start walking towards the front door to try to get out of this building, and the apartment door swings open, and there's a gun right in my face. Um, not a pistol, a long gun. And the guy says, get in here. And I said to him, look, I've got my iPhone. I've got some money in my pocket. I got my car keys. Take what you want. Just let me go. And he said, get in here. I said it again. And uh, the apartment was dark. So I, I walk in with a gun in my face. And this guy, he had a ski mask on, so I couldn't see his face. And he says, go to the back. And I look towards the back, and it's this is a vacant apartment. Nobody lives here. The windows are boarded up. And I was pretty sure if I went to the back of that apartment, I wasn't going to come back out of it, you know. So I, I turned around to try to be like, look, let's let's figure this out here. And as I turn around, there's somebody coming in through the same door that I came in through. And this person's wearing a clown mask and punches me in the face. And I'd never been in a fight before. I'd never been punched in the face before. But I remember thinking, this like this should hurt a lot more. And I kind of expected to be knocked down. And I think he expected to knock me down too. And he hit me two, probably three or four times in the face. And I just kind of covered my head because 
you're not really going to fight back when somebody's got a gun on you. That's not, that's an unfair advantage. So he hit me three or four times. I didn't go down. They yelled at me, get on the ground. So I, I got on the ground and I just tried to cover my head and, you know, protect the sensitive areas and just hope that it worked out. Okay. Um, so they kind of kicked me in the ribs a bunch of times, fished through my pockets, took the stuff that I told them was there in the first place and they could have just had, and then they left. And I laid there in the dark, just like hoping they were gone. And it, it felt like a long time, but it was probably only 10 seconds or so. And then I got up and I looked out the door and they had taken the pizzas too. <laughs> so I went back upstairs to the, the apartment that had answered the first time. And I said, can you guys call the police? Like I'm, you know, I'm bleeding from my face. I said, you have some tissues or something. I just got robbed downstairs. So they call the police and they let me come into their apartment and give me some stuff to stop the bleeding. And within like five minutes, the police were there. And when I heard them come in, I, I walked out like into the stairway and I met face to face with a cop who has his pistol drawn. And I was like, whoa, I was the one who was robbed. I, I put my hands up, you know, and then from there, they just kind of took my statement and I signed off with the paramedics and, and went home. But, uh, it was not a fun experience. Did you keep that job for a long time after that? I quit. Really? After that? And I didn't want to because I felt like that was them winning. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it was, you know, a few hundred bucks a week to do something that was obviously pretty unsafe and was going to make my family uneasy anytime that I was at work and I was going to be uneasy every time I rang a doorbell from then on. So I just decided it, it really wasn't worth it. And I didn't, I didn't need to work. My parents would have paid my rent. They would have given me money for groceries. I just, I didn't want that. I wanted to support myself and I even had money in the bank too. So I didn't need to work. I just wanted to work, but, um, yeah, I decided not to go back to that job. What town were you in? Utica, New York. Mm. How far is that from here? From here, it's like four hours from here, mm. 200, 250 miles. And now you live in White Plains, correct? I do. It's about a 45-minute drive north of Manhattan? Yeah, a little less. Yeah. And do you live there primarily to save money, would you say? I do. Because yeah. you work in the city. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I lived in Manhattan for a little while, about a year, and uh, just too expensive. You must have friends that spend a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not uncommon you know, for people to have a one-bedroom apartment that's over $3,000 a month. Wow. Do you have any friends on the financial independence track like you're, or that you're on? Yeah. I've, I, I would say my best friend's kind of the same path that I'm on. You know, he's in the same type of career as I am, same mindset. Um, but like most of the people I work with, most of the people I interact with are not, they probably don't even consider that path as an option mm, because they're in New York city. I think just because it's not the traditional path, it's not something mm. that they've been exposed to or even understand is, is possible. I think the playing with fire documentary is becoming mainstream and the movement is becoming mainstream, but sort of like being on Twitter, you tend to think when you're part of it that it's the whole world, but you realize 98% of people are not on Twitter. Yeah. I, 
I bring myself back to reality when I'm talking to you know, mostly my girlfriend and I'll be like, hey, I saw this thing on Twitter and she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's just kind of a wake up call like, okay, this is my little world, but most people aren't part of it. I love Twitter. I do too. It's a, it's a blast and it's quite frankly addicting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would you say that's the app you spend the most time on? Yeah, I think so. Me Probably. Too. But you avoid news, correct? Yeah, I don't really watch any news mm-hmm. or read any news. You know what? I did read an interesting article the other day about the impeachment hearings. And it wasn't a commentary on the hearings. It was just an explanation of how the impeachment process works, which news like that I think is valuable. And that, that piece was from the BBC. And it was strictly like this happens and then this happens and then that happens and this is what could happen if this happens. But it wasn't any commentary on this is what we think is going to happen or this is what should happen. It was just laying out the process, which I think is valuable for an American citizen to understand how that works. Just scrolling through Twitter today, it seems like a lot of people don't understand how it works. Yeah, it's so hard to find objective news. That magazine that I just gave you, my copy of The Economist that I bought in the airport on the way here. Yeah. It's filled with anti-Trump impeachment articles. So if if you're interested in objective news, um, don't don't take that with you. But you <laughs> I'll can leave have it here. It. Yeah, you can. <laughs> cool. So switching gears, my next blog post is about the differences in thinking between the East and the West. So the East is heavily influenced by or was heavily influenced by Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism. And we in the West are more heavily influenced by the ancient Greeks. They were real big on logic and they had they had high esteem for both the thinker and the person, the warrior who had prowess on the battlefield, right? They valued equal they valued both equally, whereas the East was more about harmony. And the reason I bring that up is because I know that you're a self-development junkie, as as am I. Are you conscious of the interrelatedness of the body and mind. Do you think that physical activity has an impact on clear thinking? You did a half Ironman recently. I did, yeah. In June, I did a half Ironman. And yeah, I I think absolutely it it helps with clear thinking. It Maybe more accurately, it impedes, a lack of exercise impedes clear thinking. So I don't know that exercise improves your thinking, but for me, it removes the clouds that are in my head. It um, loosens the knots that I feel are in there and are really tight. And then once those things are worked out, it's kind of like, you know, when you're warming up for exercise, your muscles are tight, you might have some knots. So you hop on the roller and you roll out the knots and then you do a nice little jog to loosen up your muscles and you do some walking lunges and that kind of stuff. And after 15 minutes, you're ready to go out and do some sprints. I kind of see exercise as the warm-up for um, a mental workout. You know, you're, you're working out your mental knots. You're clearing out the dust so your mind can focus clearly on the things that you want to think through and then the things that you want to put on paper. And I noticed that when I'm having trouble thinking clearly or if I'm feeling a little bit anxious, a run will usually take care of it. Um, so probably a month and a half ago, I had a coffee meeting with David Perel. 
I was really excited about this because I, I look up to his writing and what he's done online and everything. So in the morning before work, I went for a three-mile run. And then I went to work, went to this coffee meeting with David in the afternoon, and we spent about an hour together talking. And he planted a lot of seeds in my head. I had to go back to work afterwards, but I basically just sat there and stared at the computer screen and thought about our conversation. And then when I went home, I called my girlfriend on the way home and I said, hey, I'll call you later, but I have to go for a run. And she said, didn't you go for a run this morning? And I said, yeah, but I got to clear my head. So I went out and ran another five miles and I did it at like, it was like a 7.06 pace, which is pretty fast for me. And it felt like I was just kind of floating. And throughout the course of the run, my mind never stopped racing but thoughts kind of started to come together. And rather than being twisted up in circles, it felt like my mind just kind of smoothed out. And then I was able to go to sleep after that. That's good stuff. Yeah, I, I probably look like a weirdo to a bunch of people at the gym because I will sprint for like 15 seconds and then I'll hop my feet on the sides of the treadmill and then I'll sprint some more. And I don't know if this is the reason that I've never had anxiety that I know of, but I've always been a sprinter. And the reason that I've always sprinted is because I always had the thought that I'd rather look like a sprinter than a distance runner. <laughs> so when I was in college, the chubbiest kid on the team always came out first when we ran distance and I would always come in last. But then when we would run sprints, I would come in first and he would come in last. So that was what, age 20, 21. So I had to make a decision. <laughs> do I want to look like the chubby kid or do I want to run sprints? So that's how I came to it. The dude that you mentioned, David Perel, is a genius. I'm curious, what did you take away from that meeting? I think the biggest thing I took away from that conversation was that some people are just such deep thinkers and they're so impressive and so engaged during a conversation. And until you experience that, which I don't know that I had experienced such a deep conversation before that, until you experience it, you almost don't believe that it can happen. He, he asked me about my background a little bit. And at one point, I wanted to be a police officer. So I, I just kind of mentioned that in passing. And then we were talking about some ideas that I'm interested in writing about. And one of those ideas is courage. I'm very interested in courage, where it comes from and you know how it, how it demonstrates and, and those kinds of things. And he asked me, well, why are you interested in that? And I didn't really have a good answer. And he said, I think it might have something to do with your interest in law enforcement. And he said, you know, I, I don't want to try to connect dots where there aren't dots to connect, but I think it might be something there. And he said, when, when I'm writing about something, it's often because I'm trying to work out something internally. And I think that might be the case for why you're interested in writing about courage. And I was just really impressed that he connected dots from something that I really just mentioned in passing and clearly thought about it deeply enough to say, yeah, these things are related. And he pointed that out to me and I, I hadn't even thought about that. It is impressive. I think that's why we're impressed by comedians, for example. They have this unique ability to take two wildly disparate things and connect them in ways that we didn't think of. But once they make the connection, it's like an aha moment. So somebody that can help us discover an aha moment is really impressive. And the fact that he's so young, how old is David? I think he's 25. And what you said about comedians, it's, it's so true. You know, most jokes are only funny if it's something that's true. true. Mm -hmm. 
right? And I've, I've heard people say this about writing, that the best writing isn't necessarily original. It's just the person who is able to express in words the feeling that you're feeling or the experience that you've had that you haven't been able to put into words. So somebody explains something on the page and you read it and say, yes, that's exactly what I was feeling. I just didn't know how to say it. And that's what makes writing good, I think. Yeah. So you have become prolific in your writing just in recent months. To what do you attribute your, I mean, dude, you have like a new article every three days, it seems like. What What are you doing differently? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's not It's not quite that often. Um, but I just committed to publishing once a week. And when you have that accountability, you just have to do it. And then when you have to do it, through repetition, you improve. And you know, if you go back and look at some of the earlier stuff I wrote, it's okay, but it's not that great. Um, if you go back and look at, like, for example, the piece I wrote last week, I think that's pretty good. And I think it's the product of just doing it over and over and over again. Um, so that's, that's one of the things. And another thing is my information collection system has improved dramatically over the last year because when you know that you have to write an article every week, you're really paying attention to what's going on around you and you're writing everything down because the last thing you want is to be sitting at your computer Sunday and saying, shit, what am I going to write about? <laughs> it's nice when you can open Evernote and say, oh, here are these six different topics that I'm interested in. And, oh, look, this one has 13 bullet points underneath it and three articles and a couple passages from this book I'm reading. I really just have to piece this stuff together now. This is pretty easy. And that's one of the big things that David teaches in his course is... This is rite of passage, correct? Correct, yeah. Um, so he emphasizes viewing writing as an assembly line process rather than just like, sitting down and trying to squeeze blood from a stone. You know, that's the expression. But if you view it as an assembly line where when I'm researching, that's what I'm doing is I'm researching, right? And I'm just, I'm just putting down notes. And then when I'm outlining, that's what I'm doing is outlining. And I'm outlining after I've researched. So I have information to outline. And then when I'm writing, that's what I'm doing is writing. I'm not, I'm not doing something else. Um, I'm sitting down and drawing the connections between the different points in my outline. So when you break writing down into those smaller pieces, like anything, you know, if you break any goal down into smaller pieces, it's much easier to accomplish a big thing by doing a little chunk at a time. And now I've been writing for about a year and I've got over 50 articles and some of them suck, but some of them are, are pretty good. And I think that's the product of, you know, all those, all those things I've just talked about. Can you compare a runner's high and the flow state that you experience when writing? Is it similar? No, not really. I don't know that I've experienced runner's high. I, I enjoy running and I get, like, if I'm going for a really long run, if I'm doing a 10 or 12 mile run, I'll, I'll get in a rhythm where I feel comfortable and I, I found my pace but I would not describe it as a high. <laughs> and writing's kind of the same in that I might get into a rhythm, but it never feels effortless. And I never feel like immense joy from it. I feel immense joy 
when I hit the publish button and I know that, you know, I spent hours writing in this and then I went back and I revised it 15 times and I got feedback from a bunch of different people and I'm really proud of this one. That's, that's when you get that almost high feeling. And I don't remember who said this. It might've been Anne Lamott, but whoever, whoever did, they said, um, writers don't like writing. They like having written. (laughs) I think that's almost the same for running too. (laughs) I like that. What are the advantages of writing online? There are a lot of advantages. Um, Number one, I think it helps me to think through my ideas and clarify my thinking and then put that on paper. So if, if I have an idea in my head, it might be clear to me, but oftentimes I can't articulate that to somebody else. So the first step might be just having a conversation with somebody and trying to explain it to them and realizing, I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say. And then I just go and put some of those thoughts down on paper and rearrange them. And even if it doesn't make sense on paper, now I've clarified a little bit in my mind what I want to say. And I can go have a conversation about it and at least makes sense. And then I can go back to the paper again. And with the feedback from that conversation, maybe make what I've written make a little bit more sense to somebody who's going to read it. So it's kind of this iterative process where my thinking improves through my conversation and my writing improves through my thinking and my conversation. So like one kind of makes the other one better. So that's, that's benefit. Number one is clear thinking benefit. Number two is I think it opens a lot of doors. Like we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if I hadn't been writing online. Um, you know, you you came across my writing, I think, after I followed you after I heard you on a podcast, right? And you liked my writing and you reached out to me and said, hey, you want to have a podcast conversation? And now we've developed a friendship. You know, that was a year ago now and we talk quite frequently. So it's open doors like that. It's open doors like getting into David Perel's writing fellowship, which is something that several hundred people applied for and they had like 10 spots and I filled one of those 10 spots. And if you go and look at the announcement of the people in that class, I would say I'm by far the least impressive person on that list. But the argument I was able to make in my application was that when I commit to something, I see it through. And here's some evidence of that. I committed to writing one article per week Go look at my website. There's one article per week there. I committed to doing a half Ironman. I got in the gym six times a week, and I did a half Ironman. So by writing online, I was able to demonstrate consistency, work ethic, and kind of open uh, this door for myself into this fellowship that, by all other accounts, I probably shouldn't be in. Very cool. Many people do talk to help to formulate their thoughts better. And I love what you said about writing is can be painful, but it's more having written that that brings the joy. So you started writing at what age? About 26, is that fair? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, 26. 
So I started writing at 37, and I really wish that I had started at 26. So I think that 10 years from now, or when you're my age, you're really going to appreciate having started writing at 26. So that's really cool. I think so too. I'm, I'm excited to look back on what I've created over years, and I'm, I'm increasingly becoming more interested in building memories. So I, I talked about in one of my recent newsletters how last year I started this tradition of putting together a Shutterfly book at the end of the year. So I take all my pictures from the year and put it in the Shutterfly book. And I'm going to do this every year. So you know, when I'm in my 80s, I'll have this bookshelf full of Shutterfly books cataloging every year of my life. And I'll be able to sit there with my grandkids and say, look, this is when I went to the Grand Canyon when I was 27 years old. Or look, this is when I ran my first and probably my only half Ironman. You know, this is when I stood on the Golden Gate Bridge with my dad, your grandpa, you know, who when I'm 80 isn't going to be around anymore. But I'll have 60 years of, of photo books to share with people. And I think writing is very similar in that you are able to see the trends in your thinking you know, my thinking at, at 26 and 27 will probably be very different than what it is at, at your age. Um, but you've been journaling regularly for a long time, right? I have been. Yeah. And it's been such a huge contributor to the good life, I would say. Uh, but yeah, I started in college journaling. And I think the blog was just an extension of journaling. Had I not been journaling, I never would have even thought to start blogging. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to become a student of your own life. And one of the things that I'm able to see is exactly how I thought on December 19th, 2006, when I was 26 years old. And as they say, if you look back and you don't, you're not embarrassed by what you've written, then you're not doing something right. So yeah, force those words onto a page. I try to, I'm always encouraging young people, write in your journal. It is you know, stoicism is such a popular thing now. And so much of stoicism is journaling in my mind. I mean, it's, it sort of serves as the foundation because you're taking everything about your life and making it objective and learning from it. And I use it to journal and I use it to reflect and I use it to plan and set goals. And I used to track my expenses in my journal. So it just has my entire life in those books, you know, those what started as empty books, and I fill them with with words that are hopefully valuable to me in the in the coming years, and then hopefully I'll be able to pass them down through the years. I mean, that stuff's going to be so much valuable than anything else that I could pass down, even hopefully money. You know, maybe my I would like to think that my journals will someday be more valuable to my grandkids than money. So, so where do you store those, and how often do you go back and and look through them? Do you do it systematically, or is it just kind of like a nostalgic flip to a page and remember what you were doing at that time? I haven't gone through my journals in about 36 hours. <laughs> so we just, I went to the storage unit a couple nights ago, said I could get some cold weather clothes because it was 20 degrees in New York City. So uh, I saw my journals in my, I, I have a safe and I keep them in my safe. So I've kept them private forever. And it would be a little awkward. I'd have to tear some pages out if I were to pass them down. But I like to flip through and just see what I was doing on this date in 2006. Or I, I look at quotes or I look at notes that I had taken from books. Uh, 
the quotes that are on my blog where it says favorite quotes, those are all taken directly from my journal that I've written for the past 15 years. So those are the kind of things I look at. Look at. I also like to look at what my net worth is, was in 2009 <laughs> and see how that's grown. Uh, there's a lot of garbage in there, but there's a lot of valuable stuff too. Like I, when I said garbage, I was thinking about, you know, problems I was having with an ex-girlfriend or whatever, but I learned a lot from that. And I'm sure other people that went through relationships when they were in their 20s, they didn't learn as much because they didn't journal about it. So that's a, that's a good question that I haven't been asked. But yeah, I keep them in a safe. They're kept private. And I take them out whenever I go into my safe and, and just take a quick gander. But like anything, man, when I pick up a book, I tend to get stuck with it for like 30 minutes. So when I'm moving, so for example, we, we uh, moved our stuff out of one of my rental properties recently. And I had to go through books. Uh, my wife was like, okay, you got to put the books down. Stop. You, know, you got to stop reading. And I, you know, I just get into it, especially most of the books that I have have highlights in them. So I can quickly go to the highlights, but there's so many of them that, yeah, I could do that all day. But do you think that blogs are becoming obsolete? No, I, I think they're kind of just taking off. There are a lot of blogs. There aren't enough good blogs. So I think there's a lot of space for people to come in who are good writers, who are interested in whatever topic it is, but very interested in that topic, you know, and, and able to write deeply and thoughtfully about it. Um, I think there's a lot of room for that. I don't think they're becoming obsolete at all. Do you have any thoughts on niching down? Yeah, this is something I've been struggling with a little bit um, because... I just don't really know exactly what I'm interested in. And I think, you know, maybe that's a function of just my age or not knowing exactly what I want to do in life. Um, but anybody you talk to who knows anything about running a successful blog um, talks about being as specific as, as possible. And, you know, Dave, I keep going back to David, but I've just learned so much from him. Um, he talks about the paradox of specificity. And what he says is that you would think being a generalist would get you a lot of traffic because if you write about something that is interesting to a lot of people, you're going to attract a lot of people. But that doesn't actually happen. You get more traffic when you write about something very specific because you could pick any topic even something you think would be the most obscure topic. And there's going to be 10,000 people at least who have internet access that are interested in that topic. If you have 10,000 people reading your stuff, that's, that's a pretty good readership. And if you're writing about that thing that's super specific that only 10,000 people are interested in, all of those 10,000 people are going to come to your site. But if you're writing about the thing that self-improvement, for example, everybody's writing about that, myself included, you included, what's going to get them to our site? Right. So niching down, I think, is important. But at the same time, <laughs> I can't get myself to do it because I can't, I can't figure out what I'm super interested in because I'm interested in so many things. And I want to just write about what interests me when it interests me. And, you know, maybe my niche is just writing about the things that interest me in a way that gets people interested in those same topics. So I think the better I get at storytelling, um, the better I'll be able to accomplish that goal. Because if, if I can tell a good story and then 
connect whatever my interest is to that story. Um, like I did it a couple of weeks ago with courage. I told a story about a guy in Vietnam who, you know, charged a couple different bunkers and killed a bunch of the enemy with grenades and then was shot in the chest and, 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 and died. But I told that story, I think in an interesting way and then connected it to courage. So, you know, if you find yourself interested in the story, you're probably going to be interested in the, in the point that I make. So that was kind of a, a long winded answer to that question. But why, why do you ask? Probably because I'm curious myself, how do you niche down? I talked to Chad Carson recently, and he told me that that was requirement number one if you're going to have a successful blog or podcast. Fortunately for me, the financial independence journey enables you to not need a successful blog. And so I can write about my curiosities. If I ever wanted a quote-unquote successful blog, though, you're right that it would require that I, I niche down. When I did a podcast with Physician on Fire a few weeks ago, I had several people sign up for my newsletter with MD addresses, like John Adams, MD. And my next article was from a guest writer who wrote about the struggle of infidelity. There were several MDs who unsubscribed. <laughs> so I think they were expecting more of the financial independence talk, and they don't want to hear about men cheating on their wives. So anyway, I got, I got some unsubscribers. Maybe, maybe those were uh, guilty unsubscribes. <laughs> <laughs> could be. You never know. Um, but kind of on that same topic, you look at somebody like Tim Urban. He doesn't have a, a, a niche really other than explaining complicated things in a simple, easy to understand way. His blog is Wait But Why, right? Correct. It's very good. Yeah. And he writes about everything from, I mean, my favorite article by him is called The Tail End. And it talks about basically how little time you have left. And he illustrates that topic in... You know, like how many swims in the ocean do you have left? And he says, well, if I generally get in the ocean about twice a year and I'm expected to live to 85, I only have, you know, 100 swims in the ocean left. And um, the one that really, really got me was he talks about the time you have with your parents. And, you know, when you're when you're in high school, you spend every day with your parents but by the time you're 18 and you leave the house, I don't remember what the exact figure was, but he said, you've already used up like over 90% of the in-person time that you have with your parents. And that's where the name of the article comes from. He says, you're in the tail end. And his point there is that you are in the single digits of a percent of the time you have left with, with your parents, arguably the most important people in your life. So when you're with them, put down your goddamn phone, right? Have a conversation, play a game, ask them about their lives, um, make memories because that time, you're not going to get that time back. That's absolutely right. We traveled to see my mom in Korea a few years ago. With that in mind, I had read that waitbutwhy.com article. And I think my mom is addicted to it now because it's the reason we're here. <laughs> so she enjoyed that time so much that she decided before she goes, she wants to spend New York. She wants to spend Christmas in New York City with the family. So hence, we, you and I are sitting here today in New York City. Well, so I'm glad she wanted to do that because now I got to meet you. <laughs> Very cool. 
Um, let's talk about Blogcaster, the app that you have developed. So I mentioned you are a prolific writer. You've also run a half marathon or a, a half Ironman. You were a fellow at the Rite of Passage. Am I saying that right? Yeah, uh, that's that's starting in January. But yeah. okay, yep. And then you also started a new business recently by developing this new app called Blogcaster. What is it? How does it work? How do we get it? Can you tell me about it? Sure. Yeah. So I describe it as Audible for blogs, right? So I think everybody knows what Audible is, but it's you know audiobooks. So you can listen to a book. So this app, Blogcaster, you can listen to blogs and they're read by a real person. It's not artificial intelligence. Um, I think the people that read them are pretty good and you subscribe and you have access to everything in the app. So it's kind of like a Netflix model. You pay one price for, per month and you can listen to any of the authors. I think we have seven authors in there right now. We have well over 300 articles, over 50 hours of content. And it functions very much like any podcast app. So you click on the author, it shows all the articles under that author's name. You click the article you want to listen to, it comes up and starts playing. And, you know, you can set it to faster speed, just like you can with a podcast. You can skip ahead and skip back. You can put it in your queue to listen to later. You can download it for offline use. Um, and then you can do some other cool things like share the link to Facebook. Um, or you can share it within the app to, like, if you have the app, I can click a button that says share the article and it sends you the link to that article that will bring you back to the audio version in the app. Um, so it's really just another way to consume blog content because I was finding that you know, I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to read, but I didn't have the time to read it uh, because I was either commuting or I was at the gym or I was sitting at my desk um, doing work. I listen to a lot of podcasts at work, but I can't read articles. So this was kind of my solution to that problem. Very cool. I do have the app, by the way. <laughs> and one of the writers that you feature is someone who we are both a fan of. His name is Morgan Housel. I believe he used to work at The Motley Fool. Yeah. And he writes for the collaborativefund.com. Am Correct. I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. So you and I have been fans of his for a while. I remember us talking about his article called The Psychology of Money in our first podcast. Yeah. Very good writer, very good storyteller. And uh, I think it's fair to say we probably consume everything he writes. There are a couple of his, his articles that are favorites of mine. One of them is he writes about the degrees of confidence. He levels them from like level one to 14. And as you go down the list, his higher levels of confidence are more sophisticated confidence. But he starts that we – the way the article starts – I'm going to paraphrase – but. We all know somebody who is confident about something that they know nothing about. <laughs> and we run into this all the time because people who tend to know the least tend to be the most confident in what they know. And I guess this is sort of the Dunning-Kruger effect, I believe they call it, about people with low ability don't know that they have low ability. But I guess it works on the high end too because he also writes about how people who, let's say, are doctors – they will have a nuanced response to the question of how do you cure cancer? You know, he'll be indirect and he might give some suggestions. Um, but if you ask him, he'll say that it's complicated. But if you ask him about when the re next recession is going to come, he might tell you exactly when it's going to come. So he may be black and white. And his point is that 
even though you may be an expert in one field, it's not always transferable to another field, but we sure do tend to think so. What does he say? You're, you're confident in something because you don't know enough to realize how little confidence you should have. Right. And you apply your confidence from one field and just kind of imagine that it applies to everything. Like, I know a lot about this one thing. I'm really smart here. So I must be really smart in this other area as well. And we trust that, too, as a society, right? Because historically, you were smart if you had a formalized education. A master's degree would equate with intelligence. And then he goes into more sophisticated levels of confidence. You realize that situations when you're much different than average are rare. So he says nine times out of 10, the only confidence you have is that your ability to predict something will be similar to everyone else's attempt at predicting something. <laughs> so. Yeah, so he kind of he talks about base rates and knowing that when you make predictions, your prediction should be based on the average. And very rarely should you deviate from the average and you should only deviate small amounts based on very specific pieces of information that you have because the averages wouldn't be the averages if everything wasn't pretty damn close to those numbers. And everybody tends to think they're above average. They do. Yeah. He, <laughs> he gives a good example about running a marathon and he says something like if 50% of people who attempt to run a marathon don't finish it, then that's what you should start with as your base rate. You should assume you have a 50% chance of finishing a marathon. And then you can adjust those percentages based on external factors. Maybe something like, but I've run a half marathon before and I run four times a week. So maybe you bump your percentage up to 60% instead of 50%. And what he says is most people would say something like, yeah, but I'm in three times better shape than the average person who tries to run a marathon when that's just simply not the case. Yeah, he also talks about a t uh, you might be an expert in a topic that is tangential to your area of, of expertise. And I would run into this all the time in my career where a real estate agent would get a question about the mortgage industry. And there's no way that that real estate agent would say something like, well, I don't know. Let me get back to you. They're almost always, for fear of looking stupid, going to try to answer the question. So you're better off deferring to them, but people don't want to look stupid. And so they think they're an expert in all these different fields. I, I've seen that same thing with um, with real estate. You know, you, you're going to look at a house with an agent and maybe you have a contractor with you and they'll look at something and say, oh, no, that's 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 fine. Um you know, the porch is sagging a little bit, but we'll get in there and, you know, we'll just rip it out and we'll, we'll, I don't know the first thing about, you know, building stuff. So I'm at a loss for words here, but they'll just basically say like, oh, it's fine. We can, we can put a new one on. But then you bring a home inspector in who understands houses as a complete system, not just as, oh, this is a porch and I'm a contractor and I can fix a porch, but well, maybe this porch is sagging because um, there's not appropriate drainage right so the water from the roof is running onto the porch and it's rotting the wood and the water from the roof is running onto the porch because the roof isn't pitched properly so you you have problems that are two or three layers removed from the symptom that you're seeing and only a home inspector is going to be able to tell you that as a real estate agent representing a buyer, they should say, 
yeah, I'm not really sure. Maybe you should check with a home inspector if they really have your best interest at heart. But um, going back to the confidence thing, because they're an expert at real estate and they've been in houses so many times, they think they're an expert at knowing how the house works at a system. And that's just not the case. So I, I think one of the important takeaways from this this article is that if you're looking for advice on a topic, ask the person who's an expert in that topic, not somebody who has expertise that's tangential to that, because you're going to end up with information that uh, leads you to, to a decision that you might not otherwise make. Yeah. He says first cousins oftentimes don't have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. Another thing he talks about, which I talked about in a solo podcast that I did was thinking probabilistically, which, which so many people don't do. And I think that because people aren't doing this nowadays is why it's become a hot topic. It's sort of the same thing with meditation. People are so distracted nowadays and losing their minds that it's become in vogue to practice meditation. But this is his uh, level seven. I, I believe it's right in the middle. He talks about how you're finally thinking about confidence in a way that is productive when you start to think in bets, which is the title of Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. I have always done this naturally. I think it's because I was raised playing sports, but at the end of pra basketball practice, we had to hit 80% of our free throws or we were going to run sprints. Or when I played baseball, of course, you always want to have a 300 batting average, right? That's sort of the gold standard. So that means you have to get a hit three out of three out of 10 times at the plate. Or if you're looking at your on-base percentage, if you get on base 42 times out of 100, then you know that you have a 420 on-base percentage. So anyway, as a kid growing up with sports, I'm always looking at statistics and probabilities. And I've always sort of thought this way naturally, um, but I guess that's not common. Maybe it's not common, but also, you know, I'm kind of wired the same way as you is looking at things um, in the form of statistics and, and probabilities. But just because we look at it that way doesn't mean that what we're seeing is correct, right? Just because we're making a, a prediction about something, our baseline assumptions might be wrong. Mm. You know, I think that's one of the important things to realize about this article is that if you're coming up with statistics and probabilities um, in a way that is not an accurate way to arrive at those statistics and probabilities, then you're going to make decisions based on them. And those decisions might be the wrong decisions to make, even if you're confident in your prediction. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking as they did after the 2016 election when Nate Silver said that Trump had something like a 40% chance of winning. Well, they said, you're wrong. No, he wasn't wrong. Prior to the election, he had a 40% chance of winning. That means that 40% of the time, if you run these numbers 100 times, 40 out of them, he's going to win the election. So in thinking in bets, Annie Duke talks about separating decision from outcome. So when Russell Wilson was on the one-yard line and threw a pass on fourth down 44 times that year, somebody had, made a, had thrown a pass from the one-yard line and it was not intercepted. It happened zero out of 44 times. So it wasn't a bad decision to try. I'm sorry, I said fourth down. It was second down. It wasn't a bad decision to try to throw the ball on the one-yard line. Prior to making that decision, he had all of the information that he needed. He was thinking probabilistically, made the decision, and interception happened. But you have to be able to separate decision from outcome, and so many people can't do that. But poker players are, are really good at that because a lot of times they will – uh, make a good decision, lose the hand, and then do a post-mortem and realize that 
if they had to do it all over again, would they have done it? This happens with, with my investing. I get asked a lot, what, what uh, mistakes did you make? And I'm like, well, in hindsight, of course, I would have leveraged a little more. But I know also that the market has gone up two to 300%. So, of course, knowing what I know now, I would have leveraged. But if I had to go back in time and I didn't know what the market was going to do, I would have made the same decisions. Right. They were the right decisions based on the information that you had at the time. Exactly. And you have to be okay with those outcomes, right? Knowing that you made the right decision. Yes. The advantage of being a little underemployed is another article that Hauser wrote that I'm a big fan of. Are you a little underemployed right now? God, no. I wish. <laughs> How many hours are you putting in? Uh, right now I'm doing about 60 a week. Jesus. Which leaves not enough time for thinking and writing. Well, fortunately, your girlfriend is in medical school, right? So she probably doesn't have as many demands on your time as the average girlfriend. No, it's actually really nice because she needs to spend a lot of time studying and we get to spend that time together at either Starbucks or the library and I get to work on my writing and she gets to work on her studying and uh, unfortunately for her, what I'm doing is much more enjoyable than what she's doing, but <laughs> she's working towards a goal. So yeah, it's it's nice to be in, in, in a relationship where, you know, we're, we're both focusing on, on working towards something and, and, and appreciating this kind of quiet time to, to study and work. But she thinks that you're crazy for studying and reading about things and then writing about them and, and then move on, moving on, right? Like you're just writing about things for their own, for its own sake. Yeah. I don't know that she thinks I'm crazy for doing that. I just know that she would have no desire to do that. <laughs> In the article I just referenced, Housel argues that the five-day, 40-hour work week is outdated. Do you agree? It's totally outdated, um, for at least for knowledge workers. I mean, you can probably speak to this better than I can because you, know, you don't go to a nine-to-five job anymore. But I know there are certain times of the day when I'm more productive okay. and I haven't totally figured those out because you know, I have to be at work all day. But uh, on the weekend, if I wake up first thing and sit right down and do some writing, I'm pretty productive. And I find that like on weekdays when I'm at work from maybe four o'clock to seven or eight, I'm pretty productive during that time. But there are other parts of the day where I just want to get up and go for a walk or I want to go to the gym or I want to walk around the office and screw around and talk to people because I just can't, I can't focus on my work. So when you're using your brain all day and you need to think critically and, and analyze things and, and work through arguments and that kind of stuff. A nine to five schedule isn't really conducive to that for probably for most people. Um, and, and the point that Housel makes in this article, which is a fantastic point, is that when you're a knowledge worker, um, some of your work doesn't always look like work. So you might go for a 90 minute walk because you were sitting at your desk stumped on a problem, whether that was writing an article or, or I don't know, doing anything. Um, but you get up and go for a walk and that looks to your boss like you're screwing around and taking a walk. But what it might actually do is allow you to think about the problem differently because you're in a, you're in a different setting and you're not in front of your computer forced to be doing this thing that you need to get done. So it allows your brain to unwind a little bit, just like exercise does for me. And 
maybe you find a breakthrough. And so this is a, this is a common thing that a lot of famous writers talk about is they do a lot of their best work when they're going for a walk. Uh, I think Naval Ravikant only takes walking meetings. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's not a traditional schedule. That's, that's something that if I were to go to my boss and say, yeah, I think I'm going to work from seven to 10 and then I'm going to do whatever I want till three, then I'm going to come back and work for a few hours. And you know, if I only want to work for six hours today, I'm only going to work for six hours today. He's going to look at me and be like, yeah, try again, <laughs> you know, but, but that I might be more productive doing that than sitting at the desk for 12 hours trying to do the same thing. I think part of the problem might be that you can't trust workers, <laughs> a lot of them, to use their time productively, which is why we still have the relics of the industrial age. I mean, don't you think half the workforce might take advantage of walks to where they go get a sugary Starbucks drink and smoke cigarettes and walk in circles and think about absolutely nothing besides their, I don't know. <laughs> it just it just seems like the, those who are writing about this stuff are very self-motivated. I mean, to be a writer, you have to force yourself in the chair. And somebody like Naval Ravikant, who is, a, who is the founder of Angel, what is it, Angie's List and Angel List. And Morgan Housel, who is like the most widely read author in New York City. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but these guys are very driven. And I would imagine that they go for several walks a day. And Nassim Taleb is the same way. He walks a lot. He's a famous author. Yeah, I do hear it about writers and I go for walks all the time too. But I've also worked with some lazy people that are just at work to collect a salary. So if you told them, okay, go for a walk, like they ain't coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you make a really great point there. Like most people, if you tell them they can do whatever schedule they want to do, they're just going to screw off and not get anything done. Um, but one of the thoughts I had when I read this article like 10 times, one of the thoughts I had when I read it recently was that there's kind of this paradox of underemployment and the idea is that you need to be underemployed to have big ideas and take big action and, and reap the financial reward of, of that big action. But the ability to be underemployed is contingent on having the money to do that, right? Because like right now, I'd love to spend 40 hours a week just thinking about ideas and writing and reading books and, and going for walks. But I don't have the money to do that. I don't have the money to be underemployed right now. So it kind of holds me back from having these big ideas and taking this big action and, and getting these big things done. So it's kind of like this chicken or the egg problem, right? Um, so I think you kind of need to hustle up front like, like you did and like I'm trying to do now to build this base of money so that you can uh, tell your boss, all right, here's my two weeks. And then spend your time being underemployed so you can come up with these big ideas that have disproportional rewards. Well, it takes courage too, because I've, something I've written about is how when I was in my 20s, I was a phone monkey and the guy next to me would, would dial the phone a hundred times a day. And I remember my boss saying to me, you've got the, the biggest pipeline in the company. Can you imagine if you made a hundred calls like Bobby did? And I was like, yeah, I'd be just like Bobby. And, you know, he had that dumbfounded look on his face, but that's the truth. I would take 
10 minutes before a call to strategically work out what I'm going to say, what objections I have to what he might say. If it was a negotiation, I would outline different prices with different discounts that I could offer on the fly to where it would come out naturally, but it was something that I had thought through ahead of time so that I wouldn't get stumped. Uh, but yeah, you, you had to, I had to argue with several people, several of my bosses, but I had courage and conviction that I was doing what was necessary to maximize the revenue that I brought into the company and maximizing my own productivity. And uh, yeah, if I had gone for walks twice a day, I would have been told, hey, get, get your ass back at your desk. So you, you just have to have courage to um, maybe act like you have money before you don't have money in order to get money. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think another good solution to this problem is orienting a management style towards results rather than you know, mandating how an employee reaches those results. Um, you know, if, if the goal is to produce 20 widgets a day, you know, that's not really a great knowledge worker analogy. But if, if that's the goal and you can do that in two hours, who cares, right? The answer shouldn't be, well, you could do it in two hours. Why don't you do 60 more, right? You, I, I think management should orient themselves towards an outcome that they want their employees to achieve and then allow those employees to achieve that outcome however it works for them. The only problem is I think that certain people are wired not for results but to look good. I think they're more involved with how things make them feel rather than the consequences or the outcomes. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, a lot of times it comes from above, but a lot of times it comes from within that they're more concerned with looking good than results. Just to give you an example from my experience, I was working 45 hours a week. That was my goal for my employer because I felt like I owed that to the person or the employer who was providing my salary and benefits. And so what happened was inside of that eight hours or eight hours and 30 minutes or eight, nine hours that I was working per day, I was a freak about maximizing my productivity. Because if I had another job or another side hustle, which I did, it narrowed the focus in the time that I could provide or the productivity that I could provide to my employer. And I know most people don't think that way, but I would have to explain to my boss that I am here to provide as much value as I can. And my job as a salesperson is to bring in as much revenue as possible. And they would tell me, well, I need you to make 100 calls a day. And I'm like, look, do you want 100 calls or do you want more money? And so that was a that was an argument that I would have all the time, but it worked out for me. I mean, I, you have to a lot of times you have to uh, please the people internally who are trying to look good, and that's what we would call playing the game. Unfortunately, and it's so it's so nice to be out of that game now, but uh, you you have to please those people who are more looks focused than results focused, and so I don't know how you overcome that, but play the game folks that's yeah it. that's that, that's great advice if you can play the game then um you can achieve the outcome that you want to achieve do you have a favorite biography did we talk about titan last time you were on yeah i think we did, we did. john d rockefeller right it's a good one rockefeller's such an interesting guy i actually just let a friend borrow ryan holiday's book the obstacle is the way and the the part of that book that he commented on was the part about rockefeller how he found it uh, really interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I, I liked Titan very much. 
I think about Rockefeller when I'm in New York City because I remember writing about him. There was an article in, in the New York Sun, which I assume preceded the New York Times. It was written in 1878, and it said that he was the greatest commercial intellect ever. And I know that he was the first person to ever, ever carry the moniker of billionaire, which is pretty impressive. Uh, but that he had this amazing ability to keep quiet at meetings and then sort everything out once he had listened to everything and then make decisions. And his intellect was just so impressive to people. And what he attributed that to was being able to maximize his energy by taking naps and taking walks in nature and doing exactly what we're talking about. And um, nowadays we have people like uh, Chris Saka, who was an early, early stage uh, Instagram and Uber investor who said that he built a cabin outside of Tahoe, even though he's considered a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Uh, he doesn't live there. He doesn't live anywhere near San Francisco. He lives outside of Tahoe because he wants to go on offense and he wants to be able to think and go for walks and do exactly what we're talking about. Um, there was an article that I wrote called uh, Mindless Scrollers versus Superhumans. I think that's one of my favorite articles that you've written um, because it's a trend that you know, I, I just really noticed, you know, you walk down the street here in New York City, and I'm guilty of this too, but everybody's got their head in their phone, right? And I wrote about this last week, ailments of abundance. And I think that it's just too much stimulation, and it's creating all these other negative consequences um, in the form of people not knowing how to communicate effectively, not understanding how to connect with other people, not being able to manage mental health issues like anxiety and concentration and focus. And, you know, it's, it's just, I, I see it as a, a, a train speeding faster and faster towards the edge of a cliff. And we're just going to go flying off that cliff at some point. Um, so you wrote this article, I think in September of last year, what prompted you to start thinking about this and, and write the article. Exactly that, that we're headed towards a cliff, and I don't know what that cliff consists of. But when I come back to the States and interact with people, there's so much less eye contact than there is in other countries where they don't have as much technology. And I was dating in five years ago, and the dates when I was in my 20s versus 30s was so different. You know, I would go on a date and a girl would be texting with somebody on the date or she would, we would, let's say, go to the park and then go eat lunch afterwards. And she was posting an Instagram picture from the park and they're trying to decide which filter while well, I'm sitting there across from her. And, you know, they don't have any qualms about doing that sort of thing. And it was, it was mind boggling to me because I grew up in another era where it was rude. I'll give you another example. So, I have young guys contact with contact me because of the blog or a podcast or something, and they'll request that I meet them for lunch or coffee or whatever. And there was this one young guy that I met for coffee, and mid-conversation, five or six times, he grabbed his phone and was texting with someone while we're in mid-conversation. I couldn't believe it. I find that to be unbelievably rude. And what really gets me about that is I see... Like people that I work for will do that. You know, people 15 years older than me who didn't grow up with this stuff. I've seen it too. And which tells me that 
either number one, you're just an extremely rude person. And you don't care about anybody else, which could be the case. Or number two, uh, the addictive nature of this technology can really take over uh, in a hurry if you're not doing things to, to counteract that. Um, it's scary. Yeah, I know a couple, they're related to my wife. They won't go see their grandkids nearly as much because the kids, who are the grandkids' parents, spend the entire time on their phone when they go over there. And their kids want to play video games, and so they can't even get time with the kids and grandkids when they go to their house because they're just absorbed in the technology that we have. It's it's really sad, and I, I don't want to act like I'm above it. You know, I, I think that, like we were talking about earlier, I'm a little addicted to Twitter. If you're not actively working to, to, to be conscious about this, you know, it's easy to sit through an entire Thanksgiving without having a conversation with your grandparents, you know, and then back to the, the tail end article that we were talking about. If you only have 8% of your in-person time left with your parents, how much do you think you have left with your grandparents? I think this is one of those things where, you know, 15 or 20 years from now, when your grandparents aren't around anymore, it's going to be something, well, I'm speaking, you know, from myself, it's something that you would look back on and say, what the hell was wrong with me? What was I doing? You know? Okay. Yeah, I like to say that about selfies. If in 1995 we went to Eckerd's and had film developed and there was 24 pictures on the roll and you went with your friend and you were sitting next to them in the car because this is what we used to do. We used to take the envelope out and look at them in the car. And 18 out of the 24 pictures were of yourself. You would look at that person and say, how vain are you? <laughs> 18 out of 24 pictures are of yourself. Get over yourself. But it's so common nowadays. But so is, is vanity different now because you're not paying to develop 24 pictures? <laughs> good point i think vanity's definitely increased you know with with instagram how many likes can i get on this picture i have to take 25 selfies to find the perfect one and then put the perfect filter on it and then neurotically look at my phone as the likes stream in and then delete it if i don't get enough likes i don't understand people who get notifications on their phone for facebook and instagram i that i don't know why you would want that interruption but i'm different and i, I think that that's why people are going to get smarter while other people get dumber because the internet is the greatest tool that the world has ever seen. And those who curate their Twitter feed to get only the highest quality minds in their feed, I mean, you can tap into the best professor at the University of Chicago who is sharing his thoughts or the best Wall Street banker or MIT or, you know, whatever. Whatever you're interested in, you can get the best minds on Twitter to share their thoughts with you. And your feed could be all either, only that. But if you're filling your tweet, your feed with sports and porn and all this crap, you're going to get so dumb because of, of compounding. You and I were talking about compound interest and compound knowledge early, earlier and how when you're in your 20s and you get that base of knowledge, it's really a foundation for some serious exponential growth due to compounding. Well, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. And if you get a notification on your phone that you're spending five hours on your phone, you better be quick to find out how those five hours are spent. Because if you're reading good articles on josephcwells.com on your phone, well, that might be 35 minutes that's well spent, right? But if you're looking at porn on your phone for 35 minutes, 
once you get 12 years of that piled up, your mind is going to be mush. <laughs> yeah, that, that compounding is not the, the kind of compounding that you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. All right, I want to ask you some fun questions. Let's do it. If, you, if somebody dropped $5,000 in your lap, what would you do with it? $5,000, I would probably put it into VTSAX over a four or five month period. So you would dollar cost average it? Yeah. If I forced you to invest $10,000 tomorrow, how would you invest it? I'd probably just put that in VTSAX too. You know, that's the boring answer, but I'm 27 years old. So if I put that in there and let it sit for 15 or 20 years, it's going to be a good chunk of money. I can't think of a better alternative. Can, what what would you do with $10,000 tomorrow? $10,000 tomorrow, I would force myself to spend 2000 of it. And I would take the rest of it and make sure that our IRAs were maxed out for the year because they're not yet. And if I had money left over, I would probably put it into VWO. I've been big on that. It's the emerging it's markets. Emerging markets fund. Yes. I don't have anywhere near a 50-50 balance in terms of domestic versus international. And as you know, we all have a home country bias. And prior to 10 years ago, international funds did just as well as domestic funds. So I think valuations are appealing now. And I know some really smart people who are heavily investing in VWO, guys like Ray Dalio. So anyway, yeah, that's probably what I would do. That's interesting. I, I think I probably need to balance my portfolio a little bit more with the international because I don't, I really don't have anything in there right now. Yeah, the biggest holdings are Tencent and Alibaba and those type of companies. So if you don't have an exposure to the Chinese market and other markets, there's a book that I just read called Factfulness that is really good. And after you read it, it'll make you want to invest in international stocks because it talks about how so many people are headed from, he divides the poverty levels into zero through four, one through four. And so many people are moving from level one to level two. Level one is what I experienced in Africa, where you're eating staple food twice a week, which is like a porridge, less than $2 a day is what you're living on. But so many people are, are moving up in the world where they have clean water and toilets that people like Bill Gates are, are developing in parts of Africa. So that sort of thing doesn't make the news because it's gradual and it's positive news and that rarely gets reported. But just in my lifetime, poverty has been reduced by something like, you know, I want to say it's 300 million or 600 million people have come out of abject poverty in my lifetime. It's just amazing. So yeah, it's it's appealing, it's growing. And a lot of people think that Africa can come up the same way that uh, Southeast Asia has. So anything's possible, but we'll see. If you want to take some risk, or at least if you want to diversify, it's good to spread it out. Yeah, it's, I think the diversification is a good idea. My my approach right now is just keep it as simple as possible to make sure that I'm doing it consistently. Because anytime I add a layer of complexity, it makes me less likely to continue to execute. But I can just as easily add in some VWO on an automatic schedule. So I think I need to do that. You can, and it does play, it pays a dividend. I think the expense ratio is a little bit higher than VTSAX. It might be 0.06 instead of 0.04. Still, just Still about historically nothing. historically <laughs> cheap. Yeah, I think maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the expense ratio on a passively managed fund was like 0.17. 
So it's been reduced by, what, 300% or something crazy. If you could meet anyone from Twitter, who would it be? I'd really love to meet Morgan Housel. It's like we're beating a dead horse here, but man, his writing is just fantastic. His storytelling is great. The way he thinks is impressive. You know, I, I put together a curation piece on him not too long ago with like what I think is his best work. And uh, in doing that, I went back and listened to some of his lectures and videos and that kind of stuff. And the analogies he uses and the explanations he gives simple explanations for complicated topics. It's just super impressive. And his career, you know, maybe not the VC part of it, but the writing stuff that he's doing is kind of like exactly what I would want to do. Um, so to be able to meet him and have a conversation with him and maybe start to develop a relationship, I think that would be probably the number one person I would pick from Twitter to meet. Well, you're in the right place to do it. He's probably five miles from us right now, right? Yeah, and you know what? He actually followed me on Twitter after I after I put out that curation piece, and he's commented on some of my stuff. So, I'm like, uh, kind of a fanboy over it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it'll happen, man. Don't um, underestimate yourself. You know, that's the key message in the magic of thinking big. Don't overestimate others' abilities and underestimate your own. I told you, you asked me to read your piece before you published it, that last piece you did. And I said, dude, it feels like I'm reading Morgan Housel. This is good shit. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but baby steps. Cool. If you have achieved financial independence and retired in, let's say, March 2020, three months from now, how would you spend the first three months in early retirement? I'd spend a lot more time with my girlfriend. Um, I would spend, you know, I don't think I'd spend the first three months any different than I'd spend the rest of it. I think my days would consist of um, exercise, reading, writing, um, going out and trying to meet interesting people, maybe doing some volunteer work. Um, I'd live a pretty simple life. You know, I don't really want to do anything too extravagant. I just want to have... Um, a routine where I'm continuously progressing and doing things that I find fun and interesting and spending my time with people that I really care about. So, you know, my, my girlfriend and her family and my parents and my brother and sister and um, financial independence is all about buying your time back. Um, so I, I would spend that time with the people that I care about doing interesting things and trying to make myself better so that I can help other people improve themselves as well. What is your favorite book on writing? My favorite book on writing is called On Writing Well, and it's by William Zinser. And I actually put this in, I don't want to call it my top four books, but it's four books that I would recommend to every everybody to read. Um, I wrote an article about it. And the reason I recommend it is because the first 70 or so pages of this book is written in like a pretty conversational way, but it, it gives you advice on how to write in a way that is clear and concise and gets your message across. And, you know, somebody who doesn't consider themselves a writer could still really benefit from the first 70 pages of, the, of this book. And it's not super dry at all. You know, if you think about how often you write text messages emails, uh, birthday cards, thank you notes, anything. Um, you write a lot more than you think. And 
if you write in a way that's clear, crisp, and concise, people enjoy reading your writing, and it's easier to get the things that you want. Um, if you're communicating with your boss and you write a, a two-line email asking a question rather than a 17-line email asking a question, he's probably going to think you're smarter, and he's probably going to answer your question, whereas the you know the 17-line email might not get a response. So... Um, long answer to your short question on writing well by William Zinser, but I think you've read that too, right? You recommended it to me. Yeah, I'm a huge oh, fan okay. yeah. and it quickly became my favorite book on writing and I had tried John McPhee and I had tried Stephen King's book on writing. I've read probably five or six books on writing and that was by far the best and, and for the reasons you stated, which is crisp, clear, cut out unnecessary words, great examples. Yeah, and all of those things describe your writing. And then actually after that first 70 pages, if you are somebody who is a writer, he goes into extreme depth on different areas like uh, writing biographies or writing memoirs or writing about sports or basically any nonfiction topic you want to write about. He has a chapter on the the correct way to do it and... I don't want to say it's a story, but it's actually kind of fun to read. I agree. Well, very good, man. I really enjoyed this. I hope that you continue writing as prolifically as you do because I enjoy the shit out of it. <laughs> I really do. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I enjoy writing, so I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Are you going to write a book at some point? I wouldn't rule it out, but I also wouldn't say, yeah, definitely. I don't have any ideas right now that I think are worthy of a book. And I think too often books could be blog posts. Right? Blog so, posts could be tweets. Yeah. And I don't want to do it just to do it. If I'm going to write a book, I want it to be good. And I want it to be worthy of being a book. So at some point, maybe, but who knows? Where can people find what you're currently writing? You can find my writing at josephcwells.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I kind of go through spurts of tweeting a lot and not tweeting very much at all, depending on how much I'm working. Friends, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.